With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Carol Francis, I'm calling you uh, into you from Los Angeles, California today. It's from the South Bay area of Los Angeles, serving all the beach cities as well as the peninsula, San Pedro, Long Beach, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very large area, but I am so excited to be able to reach an even larger area through this radio show, especially as we're talking about relieving yourself with anxiety, stress, phobias, panics, worries, fears, and even the unwanted shyness that creeps in there as well. These have a biological base as well as a psychological component to it. And we want to go through as much information as we possibly can to give you over 20 tools. You're going to select all of those 20 tools, which ones match your style, match your finances, match your attitude towards your anxiety and stress. But what I do recommend is that you embrace as many of these tools as you can simultaneously because the key to changing anything in your life is to immerse yourself in all of the various components of what it will take to create the change. For example, if you wanted to lose weight, it's best to exercise, sleep well, get good vitamins and minerals and nutrients, as well as change your diet. You do all of that at the same time, you're more likely to lose weight than if you just do one of those particular tools at the same time. Same with stop smoking. I have a stop smoking series called Kiss Away Cigarettes. And if you take five out of the seven suggestions that I make and you embrace them and put them into your life, the chances of you being able to stop smoke and not have cravings is increased. Why? Because you are immersing yourself. In fact, if you want to be successful at anything, it's the immersion process of being successful your emotions, your time, your energies, your imagination, your relationships, everything goes into what it is you want to change, you are more likely to actually be able to create a change. Same with anxieties, fears, phobias, uh, panics, worries, anxieties, nervousness. So consider the 20 tools. Sit back, listen, I'm going to go fast because there's a lot of information to cover. And what's so great about these programs You can play them over and over and over again. You can download them. You can even make CDs out of them. You will be able to pick them up on my website, drcarolfrancis.com, or our iTunes or also blog radio. So you are more than welcome to listen to it many times. Give it to those friends that need it, and you'll be able to take one element each time or take as many as you can. Get your pencils and your papers ready. Here we go. I want you to consider the nature of chronic stress and anxiety because Chronic stress and anxiety is a little bit different than panic attacks and a little bit different than phobias and a little bit different than shyness. However, know that all forms of anxiety 
do kind of cluster together. Now, I want to create a section for healthy anxieties before we go anywhere else with this. Freud had another num- a really great way of talking about this, and that was that he said it's a signal anxiety. I mean, it signals that you're supposed to do something to either get away or to fight your way through something that is creating some sort of uh, emergency situation for you. So whether that emergency is an ongoing emergency that you have to attend to on an ongoing fashion or whether it's just in the moment, then that signal anxiety is something that perks your attention, perks your energy, perks your chemicals, and then get you into a mobile moment and then enables you to be able to move forward. That's what a baby's cry is all about. There's so many different types of baby cry, and now we can actually discern what the baby cries mean, which is a, a totally different show, but I would encourage you to look that up if you're a parent. So a baby's cry of anxiety is to create alarm and irritation in the human being that they're trying to solicit help from. And the alarm usually is in the terms of, oh, my goodness, I've got to stop that baby from crying. Something's really wrong. So whether the adult would think it's really wrong or not, the baby considers it. And so it's a signal. It's a signal to you. And it's a communication between the baby who's having some sort of stress and you that's supposed to be the person that handles the stress. You want to look at yourself in exactly the same way. You want to consider the parts of you that respond to, oh, my gosh, something horrible is happening. In other words, anxiety to either look, one, is this the real thing or is this just a conglomeration of other things that are going to confuse me and they don't really need to be addressed, they're just kind of annoying or very distressing or very interrupting of my schedule. So that is the difference between signal anxiety and anxiety that comes your way in a chronic fashion. Panic disorders is an entirely different type of anxiety that signals you but after that first panicking attack, your signals of future panics tend to be misnomers. They're just not accurate bits of information. And we can go on down the list. We're not going to be able to cover everything today, but I want you to consider all this information, and it will lead you to the next set of information as well. So for, consider for a moment that your biochemistry and your neurological nature of your stress and your anxiety and fear response, just consider it. You are brain chemistry. You are a chemistry lab. You are your physiology. So when there is a buildup or a sudden stress that's producing a moment of signaling you that there's something going on, your brain temporarily activates an emergency response, such as a fight or flight. It's a kind of like an instinct associated to survival. So your primitive brainstem is also overriding your complex thinking, reasoning, analytic brain because your primitive brain just wants to communicate to your muscles and your skeletal system and your adrenal system in order to be able to activate you. That primitive brain doesn't care if you act in it after you think. It doesn't care if you think. It just wants you to act. And so you want to know that your brainstem has taken over. It takes about a second or more for your other portions of your brain to actually begin to process the data of what you're going through. That's tool number one. When you go into a state of anxiety, you don't want to respond to the first sign of anxiety because it may be that your brainstem or that sudden fight-or-flight system that's provoked inside of you is being inappropriately activated associated to other things which we'll talk about. So if you're in a chronic state of anxiety and stress and panic response, you want to go through those first few seconds and wait till your cortex, your cortical brain, your thinking brain will be able to analyze the moment and really discern if there is an emergency. 
Now know that your brainstem, as well as the portions of your brain, like your amygdala, your limbic system, are going to be really convincing that there actually is something for you to be afraid of. And it's going to be so convincing, it's going to make it hard for you to think clearly. But that's what you want to be able to discern. Is there truly an emergency situation, or am I just responding to a physiological system that has gotten overactivated in the moment or is giving me a missed signaling? Okay. Now, sometimes your amygdala is consulted for previous memories. Your amygdala is a portion of your brain that has a lot to do with storing memories and emotions that are connected to them. So your amygdala is associated to the alarming moment, and your amygdala is associated to being able to see if the alarming moment that you're in is associated to past threats. Is it associated to some apparent threat of the present that is going to be linked somehow to your past? So therefore, you as a learning human being grow in your capacity to learn from certain circumstances, to be able to avoid unnecessary situations, or to be able to move towards situations that are going to benefit you more. So the amygdala will consult your past memories associated to certain alarming feelings. Now, once again, second tool, which is really related to the first one as well, is when you have a moment that begins to trigger memories about what this used to be like, "Uh uh-oh, I've been here before, Uh uh-oh, I know it's going to happen, Uh uh-oh, this again. Whenever you have that kind of feeling of, I've been here before, Uh uh-oh, it's going to happen again, you want to realize that your brain also might have kicked in through the amygdala past memory experiences that may have nothing to do with your present or with your future. And that's when your thinking portions of your brain, your analytic and evaluative capacities, begin to say, well, you know, this kind of is like the past, or it's not the least bit like the past, or, oh, there it is again, past memories being activated by my amygdala that really have nothing to do with the present. And you want to be able to go through that pause moment knowing that your brain, after about one to five seconds, it's finally going to allow a little bit more communication with your more uh, more advanced functions. However, under certain circumstances, you may not be able to really think something through clearly for 45 minutes to about four hours. That range, depending on how much has been activated inside of you, how much chronic stress hormones you've been dealing with, is about the time it takes for your body to calm down so that your brain begins to be able to think it through. So realize you might have to endure that panic attack for 45 minutes, but don't act on it necessarily. You might have to go through it proving to yourself over and over and over again that this isn't a real circumstance to be panicked about. Nonetheless, my body did signal me that I was supposed to be in a state of panic. So, for example, when individuals come to me because they want help with flying or car driving or some such thing along those lines, if they are in a state of anxiety, you want to... about getting in that car and driving, when they're in that car and they begin to feel the anxiety, you immediately start putting interventions in place. Some people will immediately take their placebo or their actual medication that actually calms them down. They may go through some very deep breathing exercises, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. But whatever they do, there is a pattern or ritual that they establish that helps them be able to break the link between the amygdala signaling panic and the actual events, such as learning how to drive a car or flying in an airplane, so that you can take those 45 minutes that your body will be sending out those hormones until finally those hormones no longer signal it, and you realize to yourself, you know what, there's no danger here whatsoever, I am just fine. And then the rest of your body begins to actually hear the message that you're conveying to your body that we're not in danger. And that's tool number four, is you want to be able to convey to your body the 
expression. We are not in danger. We are just fine. We are not in danger. We are just fine. There's nothing going on here. We are totally okay. Now, you're not going to be able to do that necessarily in the immediate moment, but as soon as you can come back to being analytic, evaluatory, thinking clearly, you want to have uh, like a mantra to say to yourself over and over and over again that through hypnosis, self-hypnosis, or other sorts of anchoring or linking sorts of connections, you have finally linked to your physical body responding to saying, oh, okay, she's signaling me, he's signaling me that there's no reason to worry. So once you, through hypnosis, self-hypnosis, or some sort of unconscious processing link, connect your mantra, we're okay, we're fine, there's no danger here, to your physiological response of relaxation, resting and breathing deeply, then you will be able to use that mantra easier than ever before because you'll automatically be connecting that mantra to the ability to ease your body from having its normal responses. Now, what are some of those amygdala responses that are activated in the memory? Well, here, just consider a few. And please note that you might have some of these that you're going to need to put off your list. Uh, Traumas, such as natural disasters that you've survived, Traumas associated to verbal, physical, or sexual abuse with anybody, any human being at any point in time to any degree. Battle zones for soldiers or war-torn arenas. And now this is really close to my heart. I've written a book called Reuniting Soldiers with Families. And one of the things is helping both the family members who have gone through their post-traumatic stress reaction of worrying about their soldier possibly being killed or damaged and also the soldier worrying about whether or not they will be killed or damaged so that both the families and the soldiers go through different types of post-traumatic stress and those get very easily reactivated by sound, by dreams, by memories, um, by thinking and contemplation. Let's go on now. How about if you've been in any sort of an accident? Uh, You know, I recently broke my leg tripping on my heel of my shoe. I'm no longer wearing high heel shoes for those women who of us that love our high heel shoes. I'm done. Okay, but I, what I noticed is that at nighttime, I would dream this, the passage of time that would go from when I my, felt my heel slipping out from under me and when I began to fall over and hit my head and get in a concussion. And that passage of time would startle me awake. And I was always so surprised because it was nothing more than probably about a 10-second moment in my life that I'm going to recover from, and I'm going to recover from just fine. But nonetheless, I went through post-traumatic reactions of these nightmares, as small of an event as that was. Now, just imagine the bigger events, car accidents, something major happening to you, airplanes uh, that that seem that they're going to be crashing, you know, whatever the accident is, whatever the moment is, if it causes your adrenal system, your your anxiety system to shoot up, chances are you're going to have residual sorts of images, nightmares, or startle reactions, and those can be coalesced or collected into your amygdala's memories and be reactivated. Uh, perhaps you, you'll, you'll be more inclined to have those memories almost instinctively give you a signal that there's something wrong. Your thinking mind needs to know, oh, that's what's going on. Oh, here it is. All right, well, thanks, brain. Thanks, chemistry, for functioning like this but I'm just fine, there's no danger, everything will be okay. And there's that mantra, that fourth tool again. Panic attacks are a little bit different. Um, They're often non-essential or unnecessary future panic attacks. 
um, that are associated to the first panic attack. Here's how it works, those of you with that panic attack. Excuse me. You'll have your first panic attack for whatever various reasons, because there actually is an accident or an incident that's scary, or because of imagination, or because your biochemistry was just off, and you were inclined to have a panic reaction because of your biochemistry. Okay, once you've had that first panic attack, you go through a series of different reactions, one of which is an aversion to having another panic attack. Your aversion to having another panic attack actually has, a, has an inclination to create more panic attacks. And the panic attacks, the second, third, fourth time, is not about the event, not even so much about the memory associated to the initial panic attack, but is about you being afraid that you're going to have another panic attack and about you being afraid you're not going to be able to control the moment or control the variables that trigger the panic attack. In other words, the panic attack itself becomes an anxiety memory that your amygdala is occupied with. Now, one thing about panic attacks is they often come clear out of the blue. They make no sense. They're not logical so much of the time. So that makes an individual feel even more out of control, not knowing what to do whatsoever, because they have no idea what will trigger it. When will they have to go through it? And now they become afraid of so many different variables they don't even know where to begin in terms of protecting themselves. So they begin to protect themselves on far too many levels. They avoid social situations. They avoid driving down a certain path. They avoid driving altogether. They avoid talking to someone. They avoid getting in any circumstance where there's the least little bit of a trigger of adrenaline. Now, remember, we need adrenaline. There are times when we need to be afraid. And there are times when we get butterflies in our stomach if for no other reason but a little bit of performance anxiety or the need to get our adrenaline uh, system going so we can really function at an accelerated level. But for someone who's gone through a panic attack, all of those things can coalesce into a fear of feeling out of control or feeling like you're about to have another panic attack. So in the process of working your way through having more panic attacks, one of the first things you need to do, and this is tool number five, is you need to talk yourself into realizing that subsequent panic attacks that are about being afraid to have a panic attack needs to be addressed. Now, that's what this particular tool is, getting used to the idea that you might have a panic attack. You want to get very nonchalant and casual about, oh, I might have a panic attack. Oh, I might have a panic attack. Or, oh, so what? So what's the big deal? Another way to relate to that, which is the next tool, tool number six, is that you again have your sequence or ritual or interventions that you immediately put in place whenever you even think you're going to have a panic attack. For some people, that's taking certain vitamins or minerals or herbs. For other people, that's going through very powerful breathing sets of exercises, which I just simply love the power of our breathing. For others, there's a mental mantra or a poet or poem that they will quote or a quote that they say to themselves over and over again. Or they listen to a certain song or tune that's being played. Or they just sing to themselves just a few bars of a song. Or they can actually pinch or tap certain parts of their body in order to be able to signal that it's okay to relax and no need to panic. So whatever sort of ritual you create, you create it so that the moment you feel the panic attack, you create an intervention that you're pretty sure is going to help you through that. And therefore the confidence in that, whatever it is, whether it ends up being a placebo or not, becomes the powerful way for you to calm yourself down because you feel confident in your intervention as opposed to feeling so occupied with your panic attack. In addition, realize that once you move into a panic attack and you really kind of occupy yourself with it, give yourself about 45 minutes to four hours to getting yourself out of that biochemical loop. 
So remember, panic attack is often, the second one is more about the memory of how horrible the past panic attack felt and your fear of any future panic attack. So as you can see, an accumulation of stress reactions or chronic anxiety also overloads your natural and healthy anxiety signal brain systems. It just overloads it, giving it too many signals that are really not relevant to reality. So, for example, when your brain anxiety centers are activated, chemicals are released to help you respond, such as the CRF hormones and stress hormones, such as adrenaline or cortisol. If your body is not allowed to flush out those hormones over a succession of anxiety events, in other words, you've had too many anxiety events in a row and your body is just accumulating more and more and more hormones and storing it up or using too much adrenaline and not being able to recover. Well, those stress hormones will build up in your system or your ability to cope and those chemicals associated to coping and being resilient will not be as evident or present as you need. Cortisol, for example, can be associated to puffy bellies or belly fat, which often gets accumulated around the belly area when there's too much cortisol for your body to retain, so your body has to put that somewhere. Blood flow and insulin are also impeded over time as well. So you want to make sure that after you've had any sort of anxiety response, that you give yourself plenty of time to relax, to recover, to be gentle with yourself. There are lots of different interventions. The one that's off the top of my head, which we'll get to more, is to go and get a massage or be massaged or do something that's very, very peaceful for a period of time, letting the biochemistry of your body be able to ease and relax. Oh, there are other ways of going about that, too. Don't forget your green teas without caffeine. Your great and wonderful red and purple vegetables are very, very good with this, and your vitamin Bs. Okay, so having given you now 10 tools, I really also want to talk more specifically about the tools associated to the chronic stress cycle that's in your body. So here are 12 tools for reducing chronic stress and anxiety in your body. Now, some solutions for this type of process obviously include stopping the cycle of building up the cortisol and other anxiety-responding chemicals and chemical reactions in your blood, your brain, and your muscles. So one great way, like I mentioned, was massaging your muscles. In many ways, you can massage by getting a masseuse. You can massage by dancing. You can massage by exercise, sex, acupuncture, and yoga. You can also massage your, your psyche or your well-being by listening to relaxing music or finding a lot of ways to laugh. Yes, laugh. Laughing produces so many chemicals in your body that counteract the anxiety chemicals that it's actually a great way to flush out the anxiety. So go watch a really funny show or movie or meet with someone that just is just hilarious or or go into your Internet sites where you just laugh and laugh each time you go there. One of the quickest ways that, that I do is I go to those sites where the babies are laughing and they're so carefree and free and natural and spontaneous. There's not a single thing that's artificial or superficial about babies when they laugh. And because that has a trigger in the female brain to also have an empathic reaction of laughing. It's perfect for me and people like me because it makes me laugh so deeply and changes my chemistry. So go to those situations that make you laugh. Great way to recover. Um, and you want to do it as, as soon as you can and as easily as you can intervene. So those are three easy ways to get yourself back into becoming resilient after you get that chronic stress in you and you want to start working it out of your way. Now, these activities should be done many times a day to break the chemical cycles of anxiety. 
You never know if your anxiety is going to be morning, noon, or night, if it's going to be in the middle of the night. So you want to be able to put these things into place many times throughout the day. It also helps you realize or know that if you need to laugh all day long and you're trying to figure out how you can make yourself laugh, how much better than anticipating if you're going to have the next panic attack. If you know that you're about to go get a massage or you're going to do some dancing or exercising or acupressure, how much better for you to be occupied with how you're going to get the next form of relaxation or recovery moment as opposed to when are you going to have your next stress or anxiety. So why do you think so many people resort to watching sitcoms after a hard day's worth of work? You got it. It makes them laugh, escape, relax, and release muscular tension. So as much as I don't really like occupying myself with television, I totally get the importance of being able to completely disconnect and let someone else do your thinking for you. Next, exercise is even more effective in helping you release chemicals which will relax your muscles. It'll help you sweat harmful chemicals that are in excess. They'll help you additionally infuse chemicals in your brain and muscles which are healing and invigorating. And exercise helps build physical and emotional resilience. It just helps build strength and confidence. Yet again, physical activity wins as a key stress reducer. It just wins. It's top on the list. Exercise wins top on the list to preventing dementia and Alzheimer's, according to the research. Exercise helps top on the list in terms of body image and strength. Exercise helps top on the list in terms of keeping your body healthy and able to fight off illness. Exercise is incredibly important for cognitive processing and emotional well-being. Sorry, there's no way getting around it, but exercise is one of those magic keys. So studies show that even those those expanding uh, their efforts in things like gardening, they produce relaxing chemicals as well as they're building the strength through gardening. Believe you me, it creates sore muscles. And it also is a form of exercising that simultaneously brings in relaxation, purpose and productivity, being outside in the sun, getting your vitamin Ds, et cetera, as well as being able to have a wonderfully beautiful garden, which is very relaxing as well. Two more interventions here, breathing and meditation. Now, yoga as a form of breathing and meditation and exercising combined is actually now lauded as one of the best ways of reducing anxiety because it integrates all three of those components. Now, let's take a moment of breathing. You'll find out as we're doing the breathing exercise that you'll actually begin to uh, feel yourself with your head being clear, which helps the blood get to your brain, for example, which is extremely helpful for anxiety as well as for being able to reactivate the thinking parts of your brain. So breathe very deeply. I've been talking fast, but now we're going to slow down. I want you to breathe into a count of four. One, two, three, four. Hold that breath for just a count of two and then blow it out purposely through your mouth to a count of four. That's about three and four. And then hold the emptiness for a count of two. Okay, here we go. One, two, three, four. Hold, two, exhale, two, three, four. Hold the emptiness, two, inhale, one, two, three, four. Hold, two, exhale, two, three, four, and hold the emptiness. Now go back to breathing easily and fully and completely. You might feel like you need to catch up on your oxygen a little bit. It depends on how deeply you breathe. I want to do it one more time. This is a town of seven. Why? Because I want you to breathe so deeply, so deeply. 
the part of the bottom of your lungs expands, your diaphragm pulls out, and you are able to oxygenate your entire region of your lungs, which is all associated to being able to carry a whole bunch of oxygen into your system. This not only massages your core, your ribs, your muscles, your back, uh, your backbones, but it also provides this wonderful moment, a break, if you will, that also is great for oxygenating your body, moving the poisons out by exhaling, and creating wonderful fuel for you by inhaling. So let's do it to a count of seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Beautiful deep breathing. Hold two and blow it out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hold the emptiness. Take a deep breath in quickly and blow it out. Now let's do it again. Breathe in really deeply with one, deeper, two, three, four, five, even fuller, seven. And hold two and breathe out. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Breathe in. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hold two. Breathe out calmly, relaxing and easing. Three, four, five, six, seven. Hold the emptiness and then go back to breathing at your normal rate. You will have increased your heart rate. You will increase the oxygen to your blood. You will have increased the sense of relaxation. And don't forget your yoga. It is incredibly helpful for people, well-researched, and has been around for millennium. How about let's go on to vitamins, minerals, and herbs. Now, you may be asking, what's a psychologist doing all this for? Well, as a psychologist, I trained in neurology and physiology and the physiology of emotions. There's just no way around it. And then, of course, when you're dealing with psychopharmacologists, you're dealing with how all the pharmacological companies actually alter your biochemistry when you're depressed or anxious or so forth and so on. So it's actually very much part of my field to understand how the physiology plays into your emotional well-being and your cognitive skills as well. In addition, I did receive a certification as a fitness trainer certification as a nutrition counselor. I'm not talking about having a master's because those people have dedicated their lives, immersed themselves in the field, and I have such applaud for them and have wonderful individuals I refer to when we really need to go a rigorous course. But by getting a certification is my way of being able to say to you all sorts of things about vitamins and minerals and herbs so that I could actually have some certification or license behind it so that you'd be able to hear me say it instead of me having to refer you on. But never, ever hesitate to talk to nutritionists or talk to fitness uh, fitness masters, trainers. So let's talk about vitamins, minerals, and herbs now as we move on. Uh, they, They have a tremendous amount of impact on chronic anxiety, and they're really worth adding to your regimen. And you want to find the right balance for yourself. Now, my favorite that seem to address depression and anxiety and the combination of the two, which they often do go together, is GABA, G-A-B-A, 5-H-T-P, 5, and then capital H, capital T, and capital P, and then Relicor. Now, the first two are used to even the moods, kind of make you less depressed, less anxious, and they can be produced by your body um, and they usually are produced by your body, except we just don't seem to be doing as much as we used to in our past. Something's going on in the way we eat or exercise or not take in as much sun or sit too much. 
So the goblin 5-HTP really do help when anxiety is present. But if they are low in quantities, then you need to kind of pay attention to what you would do. And not everybody responds to adding goblin 5-HTP well to their system, so you really do have to check yourself out. And you might consult again with a, a master's degree nutritional counselor. But take a look, goblin 5-HTP. Now the third, Relicor. It's kind of an odd one for me to recommend. Relicor, because it needed to sell itself, sells itself as a way of getting rid of belly fat. Why? Because it addresses the cortisol that many people, most Americans, have stored in their belly. But what's so interesting is that it's actually a proprietary blend which uses herbs and other nutrients to moderate your mood. It's a way of helping even out the depression, so you kind of elevate and you feel a little better, a little happier, and also lower anxiety, so you're not so tense and stressed and worried. So each of these type of uh, interventions, GABA, 5-HP, and Relicor, they interface with your neurotransmitters, such as serotonin and dopamine. And these two neurotransmitters, for example, are quite typically what the pharmaceutical medications try to adjust when they're dealing with your anxiety and your depression. So take take a look on those three. However, they're really powerful other vitamins that really are just good for you anyway. But you want to be aware that they can also help you with your anxiety. And if you're low in them, it might be really relevant to why you're being so anxious. These vitamins and minerals and herbs include calcium, magnesium, D3, omegas, all of them, all the vitamin Bs, make sure you have a complete mega form of vitamin B as your body can digest. Your electrolyte balance, make sure your potassium and sodium are in good balance. And, of course, make sure you have a great diet of natural organic fruits and vegetables and usable proteins. Now, interesting herbs are skullcap, valerian, bee pollen, chamomile, and those are just some of the herbs that you can use that are helpful for your nervous system. And those are discussed by Balch and Balch in the Prescription for Nutritional Healing. So give those a look and think some more about what it is you need. What really seems to be important is that you do these sorts of interventions for no less than 21 days, thoroughly, completely, and throughout the day. Now, some of these vitamins and nutrients uh, or interventions have a little bit of elevation of your mood, which is not a bad thing, but you want to make sure that it doesn't keep you awake at night because, yes, another tool to fighting anxiety is making sure you're getting plenty of relaxed sleep and that you're not drinking the caffeines or eating caffeines that make you not able to sleep deeply and peacefully. Because without that type of dreaming that takes place and a long enough amount of sleep, and usually seven to nine, please, those of you that are getting five to six hours, forget it. You're just setting your body up for collapse. But seven to nine hours of sleep is really regenerative. Those dreams are as important to your mental health and your sense of low anxiety, low depression, and clarity of thinking as as all the snores in between your dreams. So make sure you get plenty of sleep. Now, in addition, during these 21 days that you're going to change your body and impact the way its chemistry functions, you are, in a sense, working on creating an anti-inflammatory diet. I really appreciate Dr. Perriconin's approach to that, and I would recommend that you go and check out Dr. Perriconin. So P-E-R-R-I-C-O-N-E, P-E-R-R-I-C-O-N-E, and look him up on Wikipedia, Dr. Nicholas Perriconin. He's written a number of books about the anti-inflammatory diet. And nowadays, the anti-inflammatory approach to health seems to be the guiding post for making sure that all sorts of illnesses don't come into your body. Inflammatory diseases have an impact on your adrenal systems, on your 
uh, autoimmune system, and every organ that functions as well as your insulin system. It, it's just it's so important to deal with that. And interestingly enough, if you're eating high inflammatory foods, chances are you are also eating a high-anxiety diet as well. So dedicate yourself to no less than 21 days of taking really good care of your body through eating well, exercising, sleeping, laughing, lots of laughing, resting, laughing some more, taking vitamins, minerals, and herbs, meditating and breathing, deep, slow breathing, in and out. These tools are powerful anti-stress and anti-anxiety interventions, and they will help you on so many other levels as well. Now, moving on a little bit farther, Daniel Goleman had a groundbreaking bestseller called Emotional Intelligence, and followed it up with another book called Working with Emotional Intelligence. He discloses that resilient individuals and optimistic individuals respond to fear, stress, and anxiety differently than those who live in a chronic state of worry and panic. So what are the secrets of those resilient and optimistic people? Well, first, those individuals we know, they view the frightening event or stressful moment from a problem-solving point of view as quickly as they can. Yes, they may panic, and they likely do have all the same physiological panic responses that you do, but they engage as soon as they can in the attitude of fix it, change it, what can I do? These thoughts and actions are in place and as soon as possible. Anxiety, just like depression, is often associated with a chronic feeling that one is powerless and helpless to improve the situation that is causing the depression. So even if the situation looks bleak or impossible, quickly implement any step, any step whatsoever that seems to be proactive, problem-solving oriented. This step may be very small, but it begins to awaken your brain into a chain of thoughts and emotions. It awakens your brain into biochemical responses and awakens your muscular skeletal responses in the direction of resolution and problem solving, not being helpless and not being powerless. These responses, no matter how small they are, open up a chain of events that's opposite of the chain of events that's associated to anxiety responses. So take those actions that are associated to the resilient or optimistic individuals and if you're not typically uh, trained to look at every situation from a problem-solving point of view, it's well worth you going through some life coaching or some coaching where you begin to practice that every time you see a problem, you go and think about every single way in which you might actually be able to intervene to make it better. If not solve it, at least make it better. The more powerless you feel at work, at home, in your marriage, in your relationship, in raising your children in helping your body, in a health situation, in, the more helpless you feel, the more panicked you're going to be. So therefore, implement as much as you can. Okay, I don't like this situation, but what's a possible step towards solution? Now, let's go to the psychological causes of anxiety a little bit deeper. Now, the psychological aspects of anxiety are associated to your psychology, your personality, your makeup, so your DNA way of being in this world, which is also associated not to your DNA, but the way you were nurtured, the way you were raised by your parents and your environment and what you were exposed to. So your psychology will have a lot of impact on the way you respond to anxiety and the way anxiety impacts you. Your social situation as well will have an impact. Your environmental uh, aspects in terms of what's going on in your society and your community uh, whatever situations that are in your life, of course, can have a psychological impact on anxiety. And then whatever sort of exposure you have to, to life-threatening situations or, 
or things that cause a post-traumatic stress disorder, like I mentioned before. So causes of anxiety or fear or phobia or panic or nervousness are so numerous, it's really impossible for me to delineate all of them. But let me go through a list so you can make sure to kind of check, mark yourself and go, okay, yeah, I got that, I got, I got that. Okay, here we go. Things that are associated to anxiety involve family issues, physical or verbal abuse, yelling and shouting, demeaning attitudes of others, divorce, early death of parents, threatening statements, traumatic natural disasters, war, robberies, rape, community crime, school bullying, teacher bullying, molestations, incest, poverty, financial ruin, foreclosures and loss of residence, homelessness, work or employer abuse, job stress, succession of failures at work or succession of failures at school, or succession of perceived failures in the home or family environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How many of these do you want to check off your list? In fact, you can go to a list in a place called Road Toe L. Nicole, I'm just going to spell it out for you here. R O A D T O W E L D I N G dot C A slash questionnaires slash life dash stressors dot HTML. Okay, well, there you go. You have to replay that one over again. There's all sorts of ways of finding what the list are of, of evaluating your stress, but that's definitely one location where you can see exactly how much stress you're accumulating in your everyday life. Now, amazingly enough, I find that one of the greatest stressors is not so much the stressors of the events of your life, because frankly, we all go through those. You know it's true. We all have stressors in an inordinate amount, and we can be so occupied with how, how many stressors we have in life that we become stressed by just looking at the list. But one of the greatest amount of stressors that also seems related to what Daniel Goldman was saying about resilient and optimistic people is not the stress factors, but rather the fear of your personal inadequacy or your fear of impending failure. In other words, it has more to do with your self-confidence, your self-esteem, and the way you know you will be able to go through a circumstance confidently or you fear that you will not be able to go through it at all. So again, it's more associated to your own personal sense of being inadequate for the situation or an adequate period or just feeling like you are going to be an impending failure. Now, the stressors on any list, yours or some professionals, are likely to be part of everyone's life. So however it is how you're responding to those stressors, which seems to be more relevant, that's what I have noted over the 32 years of me being a psychotherapist and almost 30 years of being a clinical psychologist. If you feel adequately equipped to handle life's ups and downs, you will likely not generate a lot of fear or a lot of anticipation scenarios. And additionally, if you feel confident that you are with your support system, then likely you're going to be able to deal with what you think are going to be failures or tough spots or glitches in your life. So that support system that you surrounded yourself with, if you have confidence in their ability to help you out, chances are you will respond to bad moments in your life better than if you doubt that they're actually going to be there to help you through complications. What I'm suggesting is that your self-confidence and your confidence in the, the people around you to help you out it, it are going to help you be able to better cope with unpredictable yucks of your life. Even the unforeseeable troubles of life will have more impact on your anxiety responses if you don't think you can handle them. If you feel like you're always avoiding difficulties, or if you're building your kind of warrior muscle so that you know, yes, of course, I can handle it. 
If you're caught in a high-anxiety stress response pattern currently, you'll want to do whatever you can today and tomorrow and for the next weeks to improve your belief and your ability to cope with your situation. Immediately move into problem-solving scenarios and get people to help you with that. You want to fight your way through whatever difficulties you might currently have in your life and see it as an opportunity for developing the strength of being able to handle your future problems. And that ability is very similar to the way we train soldiers to go to battle. We train them to face high-anxiety situations. We make it repetitious. We make it automatic. We make it so that it feels as grilled and as, as automatic as possible. A lot of the soldiers, when they come back, don't have a post-traumatic stress response because they just feel like they have developed such a keen sense of being a warrior. However, they do have post-traumatic responses that they feel like they can manage because they understand they're going to have the nightmares and they're going to have the startle responses and they're going to have memories that are really bad and awful. There's no question about it. It's just going to happen to everybody. In that sense, post-traumatic stress is about everybody's, every soldier's life. And every family that's ever sent a soldier over to a war zone also has a post-traumatic reaction because they never know when the next phone call or the next doorbell may breed some really bad information. And if they don't hear from someone for a period of time, they get worked up about that as well. And all of that is about their post-traumatic reactions as well. However, in both of those cases, if the soldier feels like he can problem-solve and is confident in his skills as a soldier or in his group of buddies that support him, if the people at home are confident in their support systems or in that the soldier is well-trained or that the people, the military, the government is going to take good care of them, there tends to be less anxiety associated. But frankly, there's some situations that are anxious for everyone, but you want to be able to deal with the impact of that to the best of your ability. Okay. So here are some more tools. Tools that help you face psychological aspects of stress and anxiety. First, you want to implement as many of the following interventions as you possibly can that will help change your perspective, help change your self-doubt. You want to change yourself into being as most reasonable, sound, sincere, self-confident individual as you possibly can. So it's imperative that you alter your beliefs about yourself in order to improve your ability to manage anxiety, stress, panic, nervousness, or phobias. Therefore, engage in as many of these interventions as you can feasibly implement simultaneously. Yet again, you want to immerse yourself into changing your personal beliefs about yourself and in your ability to solve problems. You want to change your perception of your ability to survive tribulation. You want to change your belief and your ability to create a pattern of successful living. Uh, at one point, I wrote an article about parental horrific imaginings. And the basis of that particular article and the research that went behind it is that parents will often go through a time where they imagine their child to be in a very dangerous situation. The imagining that happens is so horrifying that the parents actually transformed almost as if they'd been moved into that time zone of the horrible event happening. And they feel it, they see it, and they worry about it. It can happen in their dreams at nighttime or in the daydreams of the day. What is really interesting is that those parents who turn that scenario into an opportunity to practice helpful problem-solving and anxiety-preventing uh, uh, responses, they use those parental horrific imaginings to train themselves to anticipate how they're going to respond if an emergency were to occur to their child. So, for example, if they suddenly imagine their child runs into the street and almost gets hit by a car, and then they begin to be more aware of where those streets are and what the impulses of a child to go run into the street. 
Are they going to teach their child to have some anxiety about that as well so the child has some self-preservation skills? In addition, they also begin to realize that they would mobilize themselves as fast as they could, running faster than a bullet, to go get their child and wreak that child right off the street. In fact, those engaged in parental horrific imaginings, when those individuals also imagined how they would rescue their child, the imaginings proved to be a training a training tool, a school, if you will, a class of their imagination and help them be able to realize that they could actually increase their ability to intervene on their child's behalf. So look at all in your imaginings, all your tribulations, all your complications as training you for being stronger and stronger as a warrior in life so you can man up, match up, woman up to being self-confident in those situations. Yucky stuff's going to happen in life. That's part of life. So knowing that you have the tools to be able to deal with them really helps you keep your anxiety down. Now, here are some here are some tools, and just list them off. I want you to consider all of them and decide which ones might be of interest to you. Okay, psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, self-hypnosis, meditation, guided imagery, law of attraction, excellence training, life coaching, self-realization work, sacred warrior work, personal spiritual work, and empowerment work. Okay, that's a long list of tools. And I, I could list these tools and go and talk about each of them at length. I'm not going to actually do that because you can kind of see where I'm going with this. You want to use the individuals that can help you, that are skilled to help you, the gurus, so to speak, of the self-help or of building self-confidence. So, again, psychotherapy, hypnotherapy, self-hypnosis, meditation, guided imagery, law of attraction, excellence training, life coaching, self-realization work, sacred warrior work, personal spiritual work, empowerment work. Oh, there's other things we could do as well. That We could talk about how in psychotherapy you can use EFT, tapping, uh, um, NLP, and we could talk about all the delineations of the different types of psychotherapy or the power of hypnotherapy or how powerful life coaching would be. But let me just go over the aspects of it that you might consider. If you are into um, reaching out to someone who you believe is an expert, a guru, a mentor in your life, one of the things you want to do is you want to be engaging that person on how they handle their anxiety if they're like a mentor or a teacher of some sort. How do you handle your anxiety and see if they have tools that would match what would work for you? Now, a psychotherapist, a good psychotherapist, is really trained to be able to use a lot of different tools to help you get out of your anxiety loops, your anxiety cycles, and move you into being into a functioning loop, into a person that's self-confident and has the tools to be able to handle the anxiety. So you go, you choose, and you interview carefully those gurus, those teachers, those psychotherapists who will help you walk out of your history of failures, help you walk away from your history of trauma, help you walk away from your self-doubt, and then build a really sound perspective on who you are, what you can be, how you can problem solve, how you can be strong. In other words, how you can be sincerely, constructively, and honestly self-confident about your tools to handle anxious moments. So... Consider the following components of what it means to re-sculpture yourself or the image of who you are. First, you will need to rework the events of your past, which have unfortunately convinced you of certain facts, quote-unquote facts, because really they're rather fictions about who you are and how limited you are. And I love using the tool of psychotherapy for that. Some people like using journaling, and other people like talking to their friends. Two, you will Next, need to simultaneously be building a list of qualities and attitudes which you can tell 
are part of the qualities and attitudes which are, uh, are, are part of the lives of very successful people. You want to see what those successful people embrace or employ that make them strong, confident, and capable. And you want to choose real, genuinely successful people, not just people who appear to be successful. Often people can do these sorts of of analysis of these qualities and attributes by getting books or articles or looking at YouTubes or looking at YouTubes of overcomers or survivors or the highly successful people and begin to collect a really strong impression emotionally and mentally as to what these qualities are that make these people so on the top of your game. You want to keep yourself thinking and feeling and questioning and pondering and formulating all the aspects of those qualities. And as you keep yourself very embroiled in the process of understanding those qualities, you'll begin to feel them grow inside yourself or recognize those moments when they happen to be evident in you or in those around you. And this is a very vitally important step. You must replace your patterns of failure, your weakness, your, your patterns of fear, your patterns of lacking, your patterns of worry. And part of those patterns exist in your mind and your perceptions. You need to replace those. You want to actually pay attention to the types of patterns and attitudes of successful people that you can replace those other unhelpful patterns with. So success can be defined as being able to successfully deal with horrible situations and coming out okay or on top. I prefer the attitude of being able to be to be able to prove yourself successful. Not just a lot of talk and not just a lot of hot air or a marketed hoopla. You want to really look at the people who have genuinely succeeded. Life coaches, psychotherapists, conference speakers, books, biographical movies, sports, public figures, these are people who have triumphed in some way, hopefully. And hopefully they have the resources or the steps to be able to help you form your own sense of what success looks like. Pay attention to how each of these people have suffered failures, how they have made mistakes, how they have had hardships and setbacks, and then how they have plotted ahead tenaciously. Number three, as you work through number one and number two, you can begin to collect a sound and extensive list of qualities that you want to grow in yourself. You want to look at yourself as an evolving individual. You can either devolve, which means changing for the worse, or you can evolve, which means changing for the better. So you might as well invest in looking at yourself as a person who will make mistakes and you will have failures, but that you are progressing, you are evolving. Do you want to create a list of words, a list of journal descriptions, or make an audio tape, or whatever is going to help you be able to pay attention to the qualities that you're eagerly trying to grow inside yourself? And then make plans to grow them inside yourself and reach out to those people who can help you follow through on those plans. Number four, along with those particular qualities you're making about yourself, Cultivate a realization that you have already manifested some very good survival skills in your past. Otherwise, you would not be alive. You would not be here trying to improve your life. If you hadn't already had a lot of survival skills, a lot of good ability to solve problems, you would be really in much worse shape than you are now. This is really borne out to me when someone gave an example that when someone gets sick, it's probably one system out of their body that's showing the symptoms of being sick. And more importantly, so much of their body is continuing to function and to be alive. So you might have a cold, but your heart is still pumping, your bones are still working, your marrow in your bones is still producing, 
your blood is still stirring true, your organs are still functioning, and yet you have a cold. So look at yourself as well. You know, I have this one area that I'm not strong in, but I have all these other areas that I'm functioning in because look at I am functioning. Maybe not as well as you'd like, but you're evolving, right? You're making mistakes, right? So you want to make a list. You want to make a list of those events, moments, gestures, words, attitudes, which have manifested in all the years of your living, which demonstrate one of the ten of the following. Ready? Here are the ten. Your ability to problem solve. Two. Your ability to plan ahead. Three. Your ability to cope with pressures and stress. Four. Your ability to avoid bad or troublesome people or events. Five. Your ability to attract good people or good events. Six. Your ability to help others fix something or help them feel better. Seven. Your ability to prevent something bad becoming worse or preventing something good from falling apart. Eight, your positive personality qualities and attitudes, which you know are resoundingly important to you. Number nine, your faith in God or your source or something that you really trust, uh, including yourself. Ten, your ability to have follow-through or responsibility or tenacity. All right. We're going to think carefully about those qualities, those positive attributes, and notice when you try to put yourself down. Notice when you try to minimize the importance of those times and those actions you took, which were positive qualities. And then start giving yourself credit whenever you can so that you can be, self, so that you can be self-confident. Not self-centered, not narcissistically, not a nuisance, but so you can elevate yourself appropriately, reasonably, and honestly. You want to be able to give yourself credit. It will help tremendously in building your confidence that you don't need to become powerless and therefore anxious. Number five, I love this one, my favorite, acts of kindness. Yes, research clear. It's very clear. When you do something really kind for another person, when you help someone else out, when you improve another person's situation, it creates those feel-good hormones inside of your system. It ups all that dopamine and serotonin in just the right way that it makes you feel happier. Happier. Can you imagine it makes you more optimistic, and it increases your ability to cope and function. And all of that fights off anxiety. So when you're anxious, try to help someone else whenever you can. Try to open a door, carry a bag, give a smile, extend a thanks, and give a dollar, offer assistance, volunteer in the organization, donate your time or efforts. These types of gestures increase you and your sense of your ability to deal with different circumstances in a positive way. These gestures help you pay attention to how others need help, too, and how you're there to help them along. These types of gestures help you note that others are in the midst of stress, and they need to, and you can make their life better in a moment in the same way that you have a need, and you might need to make your life better, too. So these type of gestures, these acts of kindness, promote an attitude of not being judgmental, accepting hard circumstances, accepting vulnerable and weak feelings and accepting that you need to be able to help other people around and maybe you also need to be helped as well. People struggle. Perfectionism is definitely a cause of some people's anxiety. And foregoing the judgmental aspect of life helps people become less anxious. Number six, and this is the final one of this particular list, when you are in the midst, of feeling anxious about performing on a test or speaking or being in a social situation or test anxieties or career failures, what you want to do is to prepare. Let me say it again. You want to prepare. 
You want to prepare and prepare and prepare and prepare. You want to learn and learn and learn and learn. You want to practice and practice and practice and practice. One of the most important steps to take to deal with your anxieties when you're worried about having to perform at something is that you need to prepare overly so, so you're overly confident. And there it is again, building your confidence. You must prove to yourself that you are all ready for that speech, regardless of any variables. And you want to practice so much that you do it in your sleep. You could do it hanging off of a cliff. You could just do it because it's part of who you are. And you need to prove it to yourself that you know the materials for a test. You need to prove over and over again that you are test ready. Your test skill. They talk about performance readiness is so different than when you just kind of pretend, oh, yeah, I think I'm ready. No, you want to pretend to put yourself so much in the actual situation that produces your anxiety when you are practicing so that when you are practicing, you're just like, oh, I'm almost bored with this. I'm so prepared. You want to groom your skills for your career. You want to groom yourself for your test. You want to groom yourself for your speech. You want to factually prove to yourself that you can do it. And if you believe you can do it after practicing, preparing, and learning so intensely, then chances are when you're getting up there, yes, you'll feel those butterflies, you'll feel the nervousness. You may even have a blank moment in your brain, but it'll come back. You'll tell yourself in a cognitive way, I can get through this, no problem. I know exactly what I need to do. Well, this chapter does not, you know, this chapter, oh, by the way, this is part of a chapter in a book that I'm, that I'm writing. I'd love to send a copy of this chapter to you. I need to have your contact information, and I'd love it if you would do that on my Facebook. And you can reach me on my Facebook, Dr. Carol Francis Show, or Dr. Carol Francis, or Carol Francis. And you can reach me. Give me your contact information through a message so I can send you a PDF of this chapter. There are way more than 20 tools that I've just presented to you. And yet I know there's so many different variables and circumstances that you face that I may not have addressed. But hopefully you'll be able to read from all of these tools, more than 20 here, that, okay, I've got a collection, at least five, that I can take with me, implement now in this immediate moment, and walk on, evolve on toward not having to be an anxious individual. You don't need to live trapped, imprisoned by your anxiety, your phobias, your panics, your stress, your nervousness, or your fear. You just don't. So let's move on. Let's give you a life, a real and wonderfully enjoyable life. You can contact me at drcarolfrancis.com, D-R-C-A-R-O-L-F-R-A-N-C-I-S.com, or 310-543-1824. And we can always do an in-person session or lots of sessions, depends on how thorough you want to go, we can actually do it on the Internet now since we have such powerful tools of being able to actually see each other and work together. Well, I wish you well. I'm so very glad that you've joined me for this show. And now those of you who are going to listen to this on a recorded basis, you get to listen to it as much as you want. Take fragments of it or portions of it. Run it over in terms of those aspects that actually appeal to who you are, where you are in your life, and where you want to go. And don't forget, be tenacious. Stare that anxiety, that fear, that panic, that worry right in the face and say, you know what? You're the lion that I'm so afraid of, and I will prevail. All right, Dr. Carol Francis, hoping that I can help you prevail even more, and I look forward to our next time together. Bye-bye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.